the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. All right, Aubrey, in a little bit, we're going to talk to Bob Smetana. He's a friend of ours, uh, religion reporter at Religion News. But we, he's got a couple articles. But I want to talk about the one main article we're going to discuss with him. I just want to talk to you about it first uh, because it really dives into a subject that, if we're honest, is not just tearing our country apart, but is tearing the church apart. Mm. And I don't think I'm overstating it. I'd love to hear if you think I'm overstating it. But the title, it really gets at it. Uh, Woke War, How Social Justice and CRT Became Heresy for Evangelicals. And then it says, The Political Woke War Has Spilled Over into Churches, A Trend That Will Likely Continue. And uh, Bob did some interviewing with Owen Strachan, uh, and and some others about just this idea uh, that uh, that the gospel has been changed mm. uh, through, and I'm just going to use their terminology, okay? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that the gospel has been is changing, right? This is a gospel issue for a lot of these people who believe this. That through the movement of wokeness, right? We want to talk instead less about this, but more about uh, racism or CRT or whatever else yeah. it might be, and that that there is kind of this divide within the church, and there are some people right now who see themselves, quite frankly, as the gatekeepers, as in like we have to keep this quote-unquote social justice movement away from, uh, as Strachan's book said, from hijacking the gospel. Mm. Uh, And so, um, you know, you and I have joked that there's a Twitter account called the Woke Preacher Clips I was telling you about. Uh, But this, in many ways, Aubrey, is the battle right now, Uh, Mm. not just in culture, but maybe, I almost said not just in culture, but also in the church, maybe primarily in the church. Primarily in the church is probably accurate, yeah. Yeah, and so let's start big picture um, how would you classify what's going on out there before we even get into opinions about what we think about this? Just mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't think you believe that we're overstating this at all. No, I, I definitely don't think we're overstating it at all. So I guess what I would. OK, we're not going to talk yet about our thoughts about this, but I I would say, I, I mean, just anecdotally and evidentially, you can see from the last two years in church that because of the racial unrest that has happened, more and more pastors have felt that I, let me let me start over. Some pastors mm-hmm, mm-hmm. have felt convicted to begin speaking out pretty boldly against racism and uh, pretty boldly, you know, that part of what it means to be a Christian is to be someone who is really, really mindful in fighting against racism. OK, yep, yep. and then there is a population who has said, Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. That is adding to the gospel. That is a secondary issue. Or maybe in some cases, that's even anti-gospel. I don't know that there's a lot of people saying that, but they certainly would look at CRT or something like that and say that's Mm -hmm. Mm anti-gospel. So all that to say, yes, I think... You, if you're reading the room of evangelical Christianity (laughs) right now, like this is 
is not the only issue, but it is certainly one of the big issues that are dividing evangelical Christians. Yep. Owen Strachan, again, who's at the front end of this, uh, he described it this way. He said, wokeness, uh, and I'm going to have you define that term here in a second, mm-hmm. but wokeness and its underlying theories uh, read in that kind of CRT right there, right? Um, uh, wokeness and its underlying theories deny evangelical theology, which holds that personal sin leads to evil and that repentance and acceptance of Jesus's grace is the way out. So that's going to be his uh, critique of it right. uh, versus systemic issues, yeah. systemic yeah. sin. They want to deny the existence of systemic sin. Right. And they want to push back about this and say, right. nope, we're lumping people together. That's anti-gospel. We can't mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's not worry about the term wokeness. I think people know what, you, what sure. you mean. I know you feel very strongly about this. So I, I tell you what Owen Strachan says there, what yeah. others, we need to be looking at personal sin. Because right. I don't think Owen Strachan or others would say racism is okay. Right? Sure. Saying, Hopefully not. We, we need to preach against this. Yeah. It's when we start talking about systems. It's yeah. when we start talking about uh, elevating this higher than maybe personal sin or yeah. whatever else it might yeah. be that they want to push, push, push against yeah. this. Yeah. How would you react to that? Because again, you and your husband, if people don't know, have been called woke back. We have been. We are, we've been called, quote unquote, the woke church, woke pastors, all of that stuff. And so, you know, do with that what you will, listener. Um, okay, here's what I would say. I would say that we make, uh, we have made sin way too small. Mm. And in our American excessive individualism, independent individualism, just like in most areas, we have made sin only, we have reduced it to only being personal sin. Now, I'm going to say wholeheartedly, I am a sinner. Period. And mm-hmm. I need Jesus. And I mean that personally. Aubrey Sampson is not saved without the saving power of Jesus Christ forgiving mm-hmm. me for my personal mm-hmm. sin. 100%. Yes. I am never going to deny that. Never, 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 never going to deny that. What I am willing to say biblically is that sin impacts our earth meaning even the ecology, even the way the weather is wacky and wild. Sin impacts disease. So things like the reason cancer exists is because of the sin and brokenness in the world. Sin impacts um, systems. This is where this mm-hmm. can get a little bit tricky for people, mm-hmm. but there are mm-hmm. corrupt businesses. There are corrupt laws. There are corrupt groups of people in power. And I believe that that is because of the the ripple effects of sin in the world. So I Mm. actually believe a pretty large gospel, which is that Jesus 100% saves individuals from their sin by faith, by grace through faith. Right. Mm -hmm. Also the, the Christus Victor that, that we see in scripture, the mighty working of God's kingdom power and his resurrection is one that defeats all of evil one day. And that includes disease that Mm. includes corrupt powers and principalities that includes evil systems. And so for me, I think it's just making the gospel too small. Mm. I really do. I think that we have a much larger, like the power of God and the work of the cross and the resurrection and the one day return of Jesus, God making all things new, Jesus making all things new and he's returned when he returns is so much bigger than we think. Mm. And I, I just feel like we like, we are so 
bent on protecting this one beautiful part of the gospel, which we need to preach individual salvation. Absolutely. Not one or the other. Right, right, right. But then we miss out on the whole biblical narrative and the larger thing that the Lord is doing. Hmm. And that's where ultimately, like, you can call me woke. You can whatever. (laughs) I think you're making the gospel too small. Gotcha. And also, CRT is not theology. So like you, just like anything else, you can take some things about CRT that are interesting. You can take some things and say, "Mm, that's not for me. It's not theology. So I don't even know why we're bringing CRT into like, Mm -hmm. we're against CRT. Well, it's okay, but it's not theology. CRT is not the Bible. We don't do that with anything else. I'm not like real estate is against, (laughs) you know, whatever. So I'm going to start preaching against real estate. No, you, you learn some things. You take some things away at the end of the day. Like uh, anyway. I've talked too long, Brian. No, that's good. I wanted to let you. <laughs> and I would suggest it's a super long article that Bob wrote, and that's why we're glad to have him on. I would encourage people to go check it out at Religion News. Uh, this here, let me give you one statistic that I think jumps out at me as to why this needs to be talked about within churches and figured out. In the summer of 2019, Bob reports, researchers asked Americans if they thought the country had a race problem. 78% of black Christians said yes, compared to 38% of white Christians. A year later, in late summer of 2020, researchers asked the same question and found that it had gone up to 87% of practicing black Christians agreeing with the statement while it went down mm-hmm. to 30% of practicing white Christians. So wow. the divide uh, massive. Massive. Is, is growing and, and we have to try to bridge that as yeah. a church yeah. and ask that question. I would also, I think part of this conversation is when we start throwing terms around woke and CRT and uh, whatever else it might be, I think that becomes a really easy way to classify people. Yeah. I, I, uh, and then you can't, you don't have the conversation. And I know Correct. we're running out of time, but I do want to say one more thing because I don't think I said this. I also think we need to be really careful that sometimes when we're just like, yeah, I'm anti-CRT, I'm, I'm anti-woke, is actually your racism at work. And you're mm. unwilling to be like, ooh, maybe I should listen to my brothers and sisters of of color and what they've experienced. Now, that's not true for everybody, but that is certainly true in some instances. And I would certainly say, as we've shown here, hopefully the conversation is much more nuanced than just lobbying titles at people and going, you're this. I think this is such an important article. That's why we're thrilled coming up next. Bob Smetana, uh, the author of this article, Woke War, How Social Justice and CRT Became Heresy for Evangelicals. Bob is going to join us next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And if you were with us uh, at the beginning of the show, Aubrey and I had a very spirited discussion about just a fascinating article, Aubrey, over at Religion News Service. That article is called Woke War, How Social Justice and CRT Became Heresy for Evangelicals. We are friends with the author of that article. He is veteran religion writer at Religion News Service, that being Bob Smetana. So we're excited to have Bob join us again. Bob, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? We're doing really well, my friend. We're doing well. Well, let's just jump in right to the article uh, and let's ask kind of the really uh, big picture question. Aubrey and I described this kind of woke war that you did as really dividing the church right now, dividing evangelicalism. Uh, why did you decide to dive into this controversial topic? What got you to want to write this uh, this article? So a couple of things. So I've been covering this for a while. This has been a big topic in the Southern Baptist Convention. 
it's a big topic at school boards that you've seen and some of the folks involved in talking about kind of wokeness and and CRT have been Christian folks. So I really and there's been this kind of new move to say this is incompatible with the gospel. So I, I started out by saying, okay, what part of this is incompatible with the gospel? What's the religious part of this versus what is people disagreeing over our uh, problems in the country and how to address that. So I went to a couple of folks who had written about this and began to just look at, um, you know, what is, is, what is driving this? And so, you know, part of that is defining what woke means, which is, it uh, really came into popular usage after the Ferguson um, protest, after the death of Michael Brown. Yeah. And it became adopted and it, it had been used by black activists as, as a way to say, don't be woke to uh, racial problems around you. And it became kind of shorthand for being socially aware. And then there was kind of a backlash against that. And so that's where it started. And it's just been you all the time and you hear it, it has become shorthand for sort of anyone talking about social justice or race. Yeah. Yeah. And Bob, with that in mind, you know, Brian and I talk about this quite a bit on the show that sometimes we can use those phrases, oh, you're just woke or you're just, you know, on, I guess on the opposite side, you're just a Trumper or whatever. And th that can really keep us from having a nuanced conversation. And, you know, I, I guess I wonder for those who think this warps the gospel, why? Like, what's the conversation that is taking place? So the conversation took place um, on, uh, kind of on two levels. There's a conversation that's about um, the word repent, which is sometimes used in, in conversations about race and repent of racism or repent of, um, you know, white supremacy which or, or white privilege. And so that's been a question, you know, what does it mean to repent of a, you know, the sins of the past or the sins that are kind of, uh, in social structures, how, how does that, you know, you use the same word for repenting from sin as you use for repenting from that, and how does that all work? Um, so that's been one of the conversations. And I think the other conversation is, is a lot of teaching about how um, the Christian faith overcomes social divides. And so you have a conversation going on say that the Christian uh, faith overcome social divides, so we shouldn't talk about social divides, and by bringing them up, you're being divisive. I think that the bigger thing going on here is not, it's partly theological. Um, there's a term I learned in reporting on this, which I had, it's been around for a while, I had never heard it before, called affective polarization. It's a term used by a, a researcher, um, scholar named Liliana Mason uh, at Johns Hopkins University. And it's really a helpful term because basically what the, the, the idea is this, that in the United States, people are not really, they have some policy differences, but the, the, the polarization is around policies, different ideas on how to address um, social problems. It's really about identity. And, and she also talks about what she calls mega identities, which are identities where your politics and your religion and your place of the country that you live in, your geography, and some of your social ideas all form this giant, big, mega-identity. So they all stack together. And then those, those groups are motivated to, polar, to social action, particularly political action, by 
demonizing the other group, right? So people from the churches are not immune from this. And then in the past, we had more political diversity in churches. So you might go to church with people who vote different or think different. Well, the two parties have really been um, sorted so that the majority of white Christians are in the Republican camp. And the majority of everybody else is in the other, including Christians of color. So now you have a place where your political ideas and your identity collide with your religious ideas and identity. So that's driving a lot of this. So, so if you say when you're woke, you say, oh, you're not one of us, so I don't have to listen to you. And then we have the bigger issue that the whole country is being, is, is, uh, and we talked about this more, is, is really going to a, ra- uh, um, a reorganization, you know, uh, where diverse, it's much more diverse. Uh, churches are much, you know, religious affiliation is on the decline. We've had a pandemic, there's social change. So there's all these social forces outside of the churches that are coming to bear on that. And so, you know, one thing that's pretty true right now is you can't build a long-term sustainable congregation or religious denomination or movement of churches on white folks alone. In the past, you could. So as those, because this country is not mostly going to be mostly white in a few years. So as that happens, as you get more and more people of different ethnicities in congregations, they are going to have more and more input into those congregations or run. And they may say things, you know, if you are in a congregation and you are a person of color and say you're outnumbered 10 or 15 to 1, you're the only person and there's 15 white people for you, you you're probably going to assimilate, you're not going to say, you're not going to have as much input into how the congregations are run. When you're a third of the congregation or more, or if you're half of the congregation, well, you're going to have a lot more input about how things are run. Because the other thing that's really true is that black Christians and white Christians in particular see the state of relations, race relations in the country very differently. Where white Christians generally think there are very few problems and white and Christians of color, and particularly black Christians, think there are problems. And those two views are collapsing in the midst of all this other conflict. Hmm. And Bob, that's really helpful. With like the, the minute or two we have left, here's what I'm wondering. Uh, this is the $64,000 question. How, how do churches do this better than the culture? How can we start getting this right? Maybe you've seen a church that's doing it well. Uh, what's one or two pieces of advice for churches and pastors out there? So I did get a piece of advice. I just heard Michael Emerson, who's at UIC, whose who's book called Divided by Faith has been really influential uh, in this. And I think part of it starts by listening to what other people say and hearing what they say and then taking it seriously, um, particularly if you're a white Christian and you're talking to Christians of color. But I think in general, there's a kind of... Um, I think being aware of the way that other parts of your identity drive your decision making, you know, is it, is it really Christian faith or religious faith, or is it a political agenda or is it a cultural one? And understanding that, that we are, that, um, let me back up. Understanding this idea of uh, affective polarization, that there is, there, there are large groups in the country that are competing against each other. And these groups don't always have the same aim as the Christian faith. And so 
they want allegiance and and political these political groups have a it's very effective to tell other people who to hate. You can really move and get a lot of things done. It does not build bridges though. It gets you can win elections, it doesn't build bridges between people. And it, if the ideas you're gonna have congregations with people from all kinds of different backgrounds, that aspect of polarization is not compatible with the idea you're going to have a real community. That's good. Bob Smetana, again, is a veteran religion writer uh, at the Religion News Service. There you could go find his article called Woke War. Also, about uh, he wrote another article about uh, online streaming being a boon for churches. Uh, and he also just wrote one about something called the Wine Church. That's W-I-N-E, Wine Church. I'd encourage you to go find all of those at religionnews.com. You can also follow Bob on Twitter at Bob Smetana. That's at Bob Smetana. Bob, we're always so grateful for Thanks for spending some time with us. Oh, great to be with you. You're listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, I am Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Somebody else that we have on the show often is Dr. Jim Dennison. Uh, anytime anybody, you could talk to somebody who's like, yeah, I put out a daily newsletter that goes to over a million <laughs> <Right>. people. <laughs> you start to go, oh, I think he's a good guy to I talk think to. You might have something to say. <laughs> Jim Jim is from Dallas, Texas, uh, runs the Denison Forum, uh, which is a daily newsletter. It's also a podcast. It's all sorts of different things. And by the way, can I add something? One of the nicest people you will ever meet. I mean, that is uh, that is unassailable. That is unquestionable. If yeah. you ever talk to Jim Dennison, uh, he probably sounds nice on the radio. He's nicer off the air. Yeah. So he is a wonderful guy. I, I was I was reading on his website, right, his blog, and he wrote something that, that I just I read it and I went, I can I can connect with that. I can mm. connect. So I, I want to read a little bit of what he wrote called The Power of Shadows. Uh, And he says, I was walking in our neighborhood recently as our area began to thaw from days of ice and snow. Most of the streets were safe, but shaded areas continued to be coated with ice. My walk reminded me of the power of light. A sun 93 million miles from our planet has the ability to melt ice on our planet. The same is true spiritually. When Jesus called Christians the, quote, light of the world, he paid us a supreme compliment since light always defeats darkness. If we will manifest our Lord's presence in our attitudes, words, and actions, his spirit will always bring his light into the dark. Here's what he says, though. However, yesterday's walk reminded me of a corollary fact as I considered not just the power of light, but its urgency. Where darkness reigns, winter reigns. Ice and snow covers the hearts of sinful humanity. Souls that are cold to the grace of God remain frozen. And he's going to keep talking about that. But Ari, I never thought of that picture is beautiful. We're, we yeah. live in Chicago. Right. Winter time right now. And there are areas that are just completely dry and nice. But there are areas uh, on your driveway or in the roads yes. where when they're shaded all the time, the snow remains. The ice wow. remains. You have to be careful. And I, I wow. really appreciate that. That call by Jim going, you know what, that reminds us, not only are we the lights of the world, but there is this urgency where, mm-hmm. where because where light doesn't hit, then darkness and cold and mm-hmm. ice and all of this remains frozen. I, wow. I really appreciate that imagery. Uh, what, what were your thoughts as you hear what Jim had to say there? Yeah, it's so beautiful. And what else I... The other thing that comes to mind is, and I guess this is just from my own experience in Chicago of the cold, is that 
then, okay, I'm going to get real pastory, right? But we then God has given us gifts like salt <laughs> to throw down on the ground and that melts the ice. And it kind of brings a new meaning to like being the salt of the world. Like part of that is like breaking up what is dark and what is frozen. And obviously, you know, in the ancient Near East, they probably weren't using bags of salt for mm-hmm. ice. But, I, you know, I think the the metaphor still holds. And I, I do think... um The other part of this image that is striking to me, he talks about the urgency, but, Mm -hmm. but I think the the other powerful thing is that um, just like, you know, in the candlelight services at Christmas, like you're Mm -hmm. the best service ever, right? It's It's dark, people lighten the candle and you see how just that tiny flicker of light has the power to light up a whole room and then ultimately, you know, start a, a growing fire. Thinking about even with uh, Jim's metaphor here that the, the sun is so far away, it, it feels like it anyway, but still has the power to melt through and thaw the, the coldest and the and the um, most frozen of things. So anyway, yeah. I, I'm taking the metaphor maybe a little farther than he meant it. But obviously, this is a great image that we get to be people, the people of God who are shining light in the darkness mm-hmm. and unfreezing things that are cold. That's not something we often hear about. We hear light in the darkness, but I like that concept. We we get to thaw things that are frozen right. in Jesus' name. That's pretty cool. Yeah, he says, from the spiritual awakening sweeping the Muslim world to the vast underground church movement in China, to the stalwart, stalwart and courageous Christians in North Korea and Cuba, to evangelical movements on college campuses in Europe and America, the kingdom is on the march. Light is defeating darkness. Ice is melting and new life is emerging. Like, I read that and I get very excited. <laughs> like, I, yeah. you start to read that with, with more and more uh, excitement. But but let me ask this, Aubrey, what does a life of urgency actually mm. look like? I, yeah, you know, it's funny. I was um, I was listening to somebody, a, a pastor out in Seattle just a couple days ago, talking about how Seattle and San Francisco are some of the only cities in America that have not experienced a major revival. Hmm. And he said, you can see that now, like the... Um, like the the way Seattle is, where which is where he lives, is so dark and so frozen. And you almost I have a friend who lives in Seattle. She makes like, you know, Christian art. And she's like, I can't even go publicly to like an art show. Like I have mm. to do my art shows only in church environments or else I will get like viscerated. And so I think the urgency, this pastor, he, he and his uh, other church uh, leaders or church planters, pastors have gotten together and said, look, this is not ground that we can break on our own. Like one church is not going to be enough to conquer the frozen ground here in Seattle. And so mm. we're going to start partnering together and we're going to do whatever we can to win Seattle for Jesus. And that's a little bit of a picture of urgency, right? Like Absolutely. That this goes beyond just me and my ability. This is actually something larger. And I need to partner with my Christian community to make a difference because like people's lives are at stake. People's mm. souls are at stake. People's eternities are at stake. And so let's do whatever we can to just like link arms and go in Jesus name. And that I was struck by his urgency because I think we can get lazy as Christians. And, and that to me, like 
wow, that was inspiring to think about how they're partnering, they're moving, they're going after their city. Yeah, we could totally lose urgency. And, and, but when we're reminded of light versus darkness, this cosmic battle, it mm-hmm. lights that flame for us. Yeah. Uh, Jim ends by saying, so be encouraged. The light of Christ shining through your life and witness will always advance the spring of God's kingdom and mm-hmm. be urgent. Where shadows remain, winter remains. What shadows will you disperse with the light of God's love today? Like, what a great question to ask yourself. Like, yeah, where am I going to look for darkness and yeah. go? I'm going to go be light in there today uh, with the little time we have left. Don't you feel like that question, that framing of even our daily lives changes everything? Yeah, you know, I I have a friend. I've talked to you about her on the show before. She's got stage four. Um, mm-hmm really, really serious life-threatening breast cancer. And she actually stopped by yesterday because of our family emergency, which we'll talk about later. But she said, I I pray every single week, God, don't let me miss someone who's in need and how I can mm. meet their need. And that to me was so, whoo, that was so moving, especially in light of the reality she's yeah. facing. And I think yeah. that's the same question. God, where do you have me today? Who do you have me divinely interacting with so that I can bring the light of your love to them? That's a question we need to be asking ourselves and asking the Lord every single day. Yeah. So you can check out more of Jim's articles and his new book, The Coming Tsunami at denisonforum.org. That's denisonforum.org. You're listening to The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so thrilled that you're with us. Brian, if you are on social media or if you're watching the news or paying attention to just some of the conversations going on in the world, it's February. That means Mm -hmm. it's the Winter Olympics, but (laughs) it is also Black History Month. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is a great clip on YouTube of kids explaining Black History Month. It's really just funny and cute and inspiring that I want us to listen to. And then we're going to have a conversation about how we actually begin to fight for racial reconciliation. So let's go ahead and take a listen to that. Black History Month is um, a commemoration, vocab word, for black activists, another vocab word, who took took their time out to go fight, um, fight for what, what they feel is right. Like Martin Luther King had a speech that violence is not the answer and no segregation. We celebrate black people that helped us change history. It reminds us to be strong even in politics. Wait, what matters is what, what's inside of you and how you act to other people. Doesn't matter if you're black, if you're white, should always celebrate it because you know the, the the struggles black leaders went through in order for you to be here right now. Even though we may have the different skin color, we're still the same type of people, no matter what. And a lot of people, they don't see me for who I am. They see my outside appearance, but they don't see what I have on the inside. It's very hard to grow up knowing that you're black and you have a lot of personal prejudice against you. I see it on the TV and I'm like, is that going to happen to my brother? Is that is that going to happen to my dad? And I always have that in the back of my mind every time that I'm home and they're not home. Black history is important to me because I have to remember where I came from and I have to remember who came before me. Because you have to look at the things that Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, and 
um, Malcolm X did for us black people so people can't treat us unfairly because they think some type of relief. Because we're, we are all people and we need to stand up for our rights. There's still discrimination. There's still discrimination in all parts of the world, in all parts of the United States. We should still fight for what we believe in. We should still fight for getting what's right. All right. So I, I, my favorite part is that kid going, vocab word, vocab word. <laughs> he knew it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was, he was pretty brilliant. All right. Well, obviously, when it's Black History Month, uh, we begin to have conversations about uh, black Americans and their contribution to our own history. We begin to remember and lament the pain that our black brothers and sisters have faced, especially when it comes to slavery and Jim Crow. Um, but one of the, I guess one of the positive things that we can also focus on in black history month is what it means to actually be a people who are part of reconciling racial divides in our country. And I think sometimes um, when we start talking about race or racial reconciliation, this can be a really, really difficult topic for people. It can be a really, really sticky topic for people. It can be a really, really painful topic for people. But what I was actually over at Relevant Magazine, and they put together what just feels like a really practical kind of first step at um, leaning into the racial reconciliation conversation without, um, I don't know, without making it feel like it's just flippant. Like there are some things we can do with intentionality that they bring mm. up in this article that I, I think would be interesting for us to have a conversation about. Sure. So, um, Brian, I'll just read some of these to you and we'll unpack them. That's all right. The first one is they say, uh, know the truth. And here's a quote from the article. It's tempting to think that reconciliation is a pie-in-the-sky, multiracial kumbaya sing-along in which people of all colors croon together in perfect harmony. That would make a fabulous Broadway number, they say, but that is not racial reconciliation. They say that, um, they talk about biblically, that uh, racial reconciliation or just reconciliation in general means to change or exchange, to affect a change. And what they argue is that through the process of reconciliation, two groups that were once alienated from one another can begin to identify with one another and stand in sol solidarity. And in a world that's plagued by racial division and inequality, um, that's one way that we can, a reconciliation provides a way that we can interact with each other, stand in solidarity. And ultimately, I think, show the world a better way, right? Mm. Rather than division, show some unity. So that's one of the first things that they mentioned. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I think it's, as Christians, we want to be people of the truth. And so truth can be hard to hear sometimes. Yeah, truth yeah. can cause uh, hard conversations. Like, I, I, you know, when I, when I hear this, it's also not just, um, like, if you disagree with something, I think there needs to be love and unity in the fact where we can discuss, right? right like, we can right. have a a common framework as opposed to just, I go to social media and I tell you how you should feel or what you should yes. do. That's all too often what we do. Instead, there needs to be give and take and pushback. Like, I don't understand why you would say that or I don't understand why you would think that or whatever else it might be. Ultimately, trying to get up to a place in the Christian world of John 17, right? Unity. Mm. And what is that? And what does that look like? Like if, 
if everybody has the same goal in mind in the end, then the path can be really difficult and painful to get there. But in yeah. the end, uh, the truth will set you free, right? And unity mm-hmm. is what Jesus prayed for, and we mm-hmm. can celebrate that. And so uh, I, I think understanding the end goal here going, Hey, let's have the difficult conversations in relationship, not on social media, Uh, not through books or not through this, but instead, uh, and not, uh, not, you know, everyone gets their defenses up, but instead going, Hey, let me hear your story. Hey, Mm -hmm. let me hear your story. What, what was it like to grow up where you did? And to have those conversations, I think it's all, we have to believe unity is only going to end up in a good spot. Yeah, that's great, Brian. That's such a good word. Let me just very quickly, with the time we have left, read a couple of their other things. Embrace your racial identity. I think this is really, really helpful to do. What does it mean for me to be white, black, Asian, and or Hispanic? What's my racial heritage? What's my history? What's my racial culture? How is it expressed? Uh, we're not meant to ignore our racial differences, the article says, but identify and embrace them so we can see how each piece adds to the puzzle of the family of God. Mm-hmm. They say, confront mm-hmm. your privilege and or your oppression. So where one uh, population might be privileged, another might feel oppressed. So let's talk through that and just acknowledge it and own it. And then the last thing they say, I think this, oh, one of the last things they say, I think this is really important, is count the cost. They say racial reconciliation isn't a goal. It's a way of life. And so this is going to be one of those, like, take up your cross and follow Jesus. You're going to take up a conversation about racial reconciliation, and it's going to be a lifetime of transformation and conversation. But ultimately, what I think is so beautiful about this call, especially in light of Black History Month, is that the watching world will see the church doing something different, Mm -hmm, see mm -hmm. the unity, and ideally, they'll be so moved by it that they'll come to Jesus because of the power that they see in our diversity and our unity in our diversity. Well, when we return, Brian, we're going to have what I might cry kind of an emotional conversation about the family emergency we had this week. But in light of that, I want to talk about fear and trusting Mm. God. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we're so glad that you're with us today. Okay, Brian, before I dive into my family emergency, Mm -hmm. uh... You're a parent, right? So I think we could all just like say on the table that one of our biggest nightmares as parents is something bad happening to our kids. So I don't think, uh, thankfully, I've never even had anything happen to any of my kids like what you're about to describe. Like it's never actually happened in my life. But I don't think I knew what. Uh, let's see how to put this. I don't think I've ever felt fear in my life or anxiety than I actually feel for my kids. Like I, that's stronger than anything I've ever felt, especially as they even get older and you're like, I'm losing kind of control. Is everything okay? How are they doing? Like it's even the, the possibility of our kids getting hurt, the possibility of yes. bad things that happen yes. to my kids. That's what keeps me up at night. That's what puts a pit in my stomach. It's rarely yes. about myself or my job or even my wife. True? It's, it's always about my kids. And like I said, for me, it's only ever been kind of the fear of something bad. Like I've had kids, you know, some of, you know, my kids, they've had minor surgeries or done this, but nothing where it was like, like, is my kid going to make it or is this going to, and and that's probably going to come at some point. Uh, I I pray not, but yeah. yeah, the anxiety and fear that I feel around my kids is, is something is probably the highest anxiety and fear that I feel in my life. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think most parents would just 
are probably nodding their heads who are listening. Like, yes, yes, yes. So all of this is a segue. I'm sure our listeners can guess into our family emergency. So my, um, my youngest son, Nolan, he's 10 years old. He is, uh, very allergic to peanuts, tree nuts, dogs, and of all things, green peas. And it's, you know, such a, that one especially is such a random allergy, but it is green peas, believe it or not, are in the nut family. Mm. And so that's where the, yeah, the nut family, the peanut family. And so that's why sometimes kids who have very severe tree nut or peanut allergies can also be allergic to green peas. So we were told from an early age that Nolan might have a green pea allergy. And the first time Nolan had green peas, he kept saying, his mouth is hot, his mouth is hot. And we were like, you're fine. Eat your vegetables. (laughs) We feel like terrible parents, right? And then all of a sudden I was like, wait, the allergist told us this might happen. And we gave him Benadryl and he was okay. Unfortunately, what can happen with food allergies, especially for kids who have anaphylaxis, is the more exposure they have, the worse the reaction can get. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Wow. Oh, okay. Yes. So Nolan uh, had green peas for the first time when he realized he was allergic. He actually accidentally had green peas a few years ago when we gave him something that had um, pea protein in it that we missed. Uh, and then and Benadryl worked in all of those situations. But on, I don't even know what night it was now, I guess. Monday? Monday, Monday night. night. Yeah, yep. m- Monday night. That's right. Um Nolan uh, started having a crazy allergic reaction to something. Mm. His dad had made him a grilled cheese sandwich. Total oversight on both of our parts. The bread that I usually would not bring this in the house, but I missed it. The bread had pea fiber in it, which I've never even heard of pea fiber, but Mm -mm. apparently it is something made from green peas. And it was in the bread. So I brought it into the house. Kevin missed it. We both just total oversight. And he went into a major anaphylactic shock. And it was honestly one of the scariest things we have ever been through as parents. It was the worst allergic reaction he has ever had. And so we had to rush him to the ER and they immediately like stabbed him with his, well, their own EpiPen. We carry EpiPen with us everywhere we go. They stabbed him with the EpiPen. They doused him with steroids, Benadryl, even Pepsid-AC, all kinds of stuff. And then we were there till about two in the morning because they were just checking his heart and making sure that um, the allergen was actually leaving his system. The poison was actually leaving his system. But it was like, okay, you you get through the adrenaline of what happened and you're like, he's okay, he's okay, he's okay, he's okay. But then as a parent, you have to step back and go, oh, my son literally could have died. Like this Mm -hmm. could have killed my kid, had an hour gone longer. That's unbelievable. Had we done anything stupid, like not taking him to the hospital. And the crazy thing is, Brian, I'm just going to like vent on air if that's okay. Mm-hmm. We, um, That's why we have a show. <laughs> we, we hesitated. Like we were like, we kept giving him Benadryl. And after four Benadryl, the thing is still getting worse. His reaction is still getting worse. And we're like, it'll be okay. Maybe he just like, we just kept hemming and hawing. And finally yeah. we were like, no, no, no. He needs to go to the hospital. But it was just like, well, I don't know what happened. We weren't thinking clearly, I guess, because of our fear or ignorance or whatever. The Lord protected him. I'm so thankful for the pediatric uh, emergency over it. It's not called CDH anymore, but in my right, mind, right, right. it's CDH. Yep, so great. So grateful for epinephrine. So grateful for the care. So grateful to God that my son is okay. Um, he's got some obviously residual stuff he's working yeah. through now just from going through something so traumatic. But and so does his mom. And so does his 
mom. <laughs> I need it. I need it and still need like a moment just to have a little meltdown and gather myself. Yeah. But yeah. all of that to say, there's a very long way of saying, look, there are times when we do face like our worst nightmares about our kids when they like come home. Mm. And this was it for me. And I you know, the Lord was kind to us. And so I praise him. I cannot imagine. I know there are stories where it doesn't work out that way, right? Like you, you Mm -hmm. lose the baby or someone does get hit by the car and it kills them or cancer takes your child or, you know, there are nightmare stories out there that parents live with. And it is just one of those, I don't even know how to like make it pretty for people, but it is one of those things where you have to just Praise God that you have Mm -hmm. a God Mm -hmm. that you can give your fears to, because I don't know how to do this except just saying, oh, God, thank you. You protected him. Oh, God, thank you. Protected him. Oh, God, thank you for just hear our fears. You've got them. I have to trust you. And even if it doesn't go the way I want it to, I still can trust you. But God, thank you that it did. Like, I, I, I don't know anything to do with my fear except give it to the Lord. Yeah. And let me ask you that. Praise God that your son's yeah. doing okay. That was a long way to tell people why I did the show alone yesterday. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, thanks for letting me be here. <laughs> uh, but let me ask you that. Some people might be hearing that going, gosh, I don't know how to deal with that kind of fear. Uh, or I'm dealing with something. So, and this is a hard question, Aubrey, but let's get practical about it. How do you actually give your fear to God? Like what yeah, does that actually uh, look like for you or for other people out there? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I know there are a lot of people who are like, let your faith be bigger than your mm-hmm. fear. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, yeah, I, that sounds great until my kid's about to die. Mm-hmm. Like then, like, mm-hmm. so I, practically, Brian, I mean, if I was preaching this sermon a week ago, I probably would have said something different than what I'm going to say now. For me, I've literally just been like, Lord, I, you, you have to help, 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 help. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I feel like giving my fear to God has been. And yeah. he did help and I'm praising him, but I still feel like I'm processing it. Like waking up at night going, <gasps> Okay, no, he's he's right there. Mm-hmm. I see my mm-hmm. little boy. I've gotten up like almost every hour to check on him. Is he still breathing? You know, and he is. He's doing great. I think it was more traumatic for me than for him. But I, I don't know how except in our just desperation and recognizing how vulnerable we are and how precious life is. Uh, the only way we can give our fear to God is literally to be like, God, help, 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 help. I need you to invade this because I, I can't carry it. That's right. And I think we have to do that consistently, right? Like not live in fear, but just like, Oh, okay, God, I'm really feeling this here. I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you and just ask you to help me because I can't carry it alone. That's a good word right there. Yeah. Fear, fear is not a sin, but it can be crippling mm. and oh, it's hard. Right. I, uh, especially once you've gone through a scary experience like you did, it yeah. breeds more fear. Uh, but a lot of people out there living with anxiety, living with fear, um, Again, that is not a sin, but God also promises us to deliver and be present and to give us peace. And and so I do think it, while it sounds like a church answer, the answer is actually to go to him and to yeah, run to him. It is. Uh, and we'd encourage you to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for letting listeners. Thanks for letting me vent yes. about that. Well, when we return, we're going to talk about something a little bit controversial. That is Bill Cosby himself. And we're going to Ask the question, should our views on someone's contributions to film, TV, or music change based on their personal moral failings, their sin, or their criminal behavior? We'll talk about that when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. Brian, we're talking about some heavy things today. And now we're going to talk about one of the biggest questions that people ask. Can we separate people's art from the artists? Mm. Can we appreciate and find beautiful contributions to what people, artists put out into the world, even if their behavior is despicable? I think we have this question. We, we talk about this a lot when we're talking about like a Mark Driscoll, right? right. Or a Ravi Zacharias. Uh, can we continue to consume their sermons, their books, their ministry, et cetera, even though we know these horrific things about them. And, um, you know, one of the people that you and I have talked about on the show before, Brian, because I know you're a massive fan of his show, The Cosby Show, is Mm -hmm. Bill Cosby. And can we, knowing what we know about Bill Cosby, that he uh, drugged and assaulted, I don't even know how many women, a lot of women, nobody knows, countless women, can we still appreciate his shows, his comedy, his stand-up, etc.? And there's a new documentary coming up on Showtime by a stand-up comedian who's actually asking that very question. He says, we need to talk about Cosby. So what I want us to do is to play the trailer to that documentary mm-hmm. because the trailer itself asks some really good questions. And then let's just talk about that. How do we think about problematic artists and their art? Let's go ahead and listen. Do not edit this. A lot of people knew. Because you can't do what he did unless you have other people supporting what you're doing. Spanish fly, the girl would drink it and hello America. Bill Cosby had been one of my heroes. I'm a black man, stand-up comic. I was born in the 70s. But this... More trouble for Bill Cosby. The accusations just keep coming in. This was complicated. How do we talk about Bill Cosby? Uh-uh. It's complex, Kamal, you know? Bill Cosby was our teacher. Kind of center of morality all throughout his career. Made my grandmother laugh, made everybody in the house laugh. You can't speak about black America in the 20th century and not talk about Bill Cosby. Thank you. On that set, I saw black writers, black directors. Did you remember what his job was on the show? He was a pediatrician. He was an OBGYN. <gasps> That's right, he delivered babies. Oh, my God. You could have been a dentist for crying out loud, but you weren't. Bill Cosby has been leaving breadcrumbs. It's my barbecue sauce. <laughs> that people's on you, they get all huggy-buggy. He was talking about how to drug women. Beautiful women. They were lined up outside of his dressing room. What did you think was going on? He looked at me and he said, fooled him again. You don't often learn that your heroes the worst sorts of villains. This is just a sad day in the history of black culture. It was just like, no, not Bill Cosby. It's tough being a sister saying, you know it scares me? You know now. I feel like I have to have this discussion. We thought we knew Cosby. We never knew Cosby. Okay. I mean, wow. First of all, I want to see that documentary. 100%. It looks very intense. Um, Brian, how do you reconcile this? Because this is a hard question. Yeah. Can we continue watching consuming? Bill Cosby is a really hard one, Aubrey, because he was the father figure 
Uh, certainly for the African-American community. But I would suggest, you know, he was at least one of the most important father figures for all of America. Yeah, he was America's dad for a long time. Yes, absolutely. And and, uh, this documentary has to do a lot with African-American reaction because Mm -hmm. that that role that he played was even that much bigger. Like he was the first real. Yeah. that picture in Hollywood uh, during the Cosby show, but all of us watch the Cosby show. Everybody loved the Cosby show. And then to see the depravity with which his crimes are reported and really well substantiated, whether, you know, technicalities or not. Um, And like you said, this ends up calling into question other things, right? Do I read and watch Ravi Zachariah stuff? Do I, you know, all of these things, Mm. especially when criminal things have taken place. Mm. The Bill Cosby one is, is really hard because can you go, you know what? The Cosby show was a good show. Yeah. Headlined by a bad man. Right. Uh, But can I watch his comedy? Can I watch Fat Albert? Can I watch or do I need to get rid of all of it? And it goes down in the books. Right. Uh, I don't think there's a good answer to it. I think it's a very personal answer to what people uh, want to do. Um, And the documentary, they go on to say, doesn't go on to tell you whether you should watch or not watch. I would say this. I have no problem with people watching The Cosby Show. I'll still watch it if it's on every now and then. Yeah. But I don't feel the same when I watch it. Mm, Uh, There there is almost like a guiltiness watching it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely uh, makes sense. Because of who he was. Uh, this article, uh, the guy who ended up making this documentary, he kind of says, you know, we like to talk about a Jekyll and Hyde. Like there was the real Bill Cosby and there was this other Bill Cosby. And he goes, that's that's a lie. There's mm-hmm. one Bill Cosby. And you have mm-hmm. to wrestle with that. Uh, it's why I don't watch, you know, Ravi Zacharias, the stuff yeah. he did was so bad. I won't watch and listen and read his stuff anymore. Do I tell yeah. people they're sinners if they do? Absolutely not. Go yeah. ahead and read it. Right. Uh, do this and that. Other pastors and whatever else. I just don't think there's an easy answer. But I do not think the answer we can give is, well, that was Ravi when at his worst, but there was mm. a good time. No, it's one person. If you can reconcile that and still read his stuff, watch his sermons, whatever else, that's on you. Like you yeah. make yeah. that call. The yeah. same with Bill Cosby, the same with any host mm-hmm. of people's. I've struggled with this, Aubrey. Uh, you, I, I'm a huge sports fan, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, sports are littered with bad people. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Does that mean I can't root for the team? I still root for the team. That's the old Jerry Seinfeld line that we're actually just rooting for laundry. We don't actually care what the people are like. (laughs) These become, what about, what about just crazy rock stars? What about all of this stuff? And so it becomes difficult. I think, uh, it's a personal, uh, it's a personal choice. And I do think you can split it, but I would say in the Christian world with the Christian authors and speakers, I know this is might sound weird. I think it's harder to do. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you, cause you expect that they're answering to a higher power, the Lord, yeah, <laughs> right? hundred yep. percent there to their Christian community. I, I think you're right, Brian, like you can't really answer this easily. It is it. I think it's worth talking about as a question. It's worth sort of holding and going, what is right here? I, you know, there was a skating pair at the winter Olympics that danced to a Michael Jackson medley. And I have mm. to be honest with you, like since a lot of the accusation against Michael Jackson came out, allegedly being a pedophile, allegedly, you know, raping young boys. I, I can't listen to his music, but mm-hmm. I love Michael Jackson's music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a very personal thing for me. Like that feels too far. If I'm going to celebrate Michael Jackson's music, then I'm celebrating Michael Jackson. It's the same with Cosby. If I'm going to watch his show that I'm going to celebrate what he did to women, same with Ravi. But I understand that that's not 
easy and that's not blanket. Like there are other people that you look at, well, Aubrey, you listen to that song or you watch that movie. Yeah, I do. And so it's there. It's like, this isn't one and done for everybody. I do think we have to, you almost can't principalize it. Mm. You have to just go before the Lord. Like, what is my conscience telling me? What's the Holy Spirit telling me? And then think really carefully about it, especially when you're talking about Christian people and go from there. But I, I'm excited to watch this documentary because I, think I am it might, too. might help us at least wrestle with even if we don't come to some, you know, qualifying answer mm-hmm. there at the end. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.